We're in a series called God's Plan for Your Well-Being. And today we're going to be looking at the subject of spiritual well-being. And if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 55? Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, In a way, spiritual well-being is the one subject in this series that we talk about a lot as a church. I would say that much of the time we don't particularly talk about how you thrive physically in terms of our physical bodies as we looked at two weeks ago with Moses or perhaps even emotionally, vocationally, those financially. Those aren't major things. We don't talk about them all the time. But in many ways, spiritual well-being is at the heart of what we preach on all the time. In some ways, all of my messages are about spiritual well-being. But what I wanted to do today is to anchor it in a particular passage that expresses the idea of spiritual well-being in a very vivid, many-coloured, rich way. Because many of us will probably notice that the Bible very, very rarely uses the word well-being. That's not, that's not usually, the, in most of our English translations, that's not the word we would use. The word the Bible usually uses, the Hebrew word they normally use for what we are calling well-being, is shalom. It's a very, very big, rich, deep word that's very hard to capture in English. The word we normally use to translate shalom is peace. But if you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll know shalom is is a deeper, bigger word than that. It's the word you use to greet people. So in some ways it means hello or greetings, but it also means welfare and abundance and prosperity and wholeness and we might say well-being. And so when we, whenever we read a text like that about the peace, the shalom of God, it's really a, a, a text that is carrying more with it than simply, I'm not at war with you, or I haven't fallen out with so-and-so. It's a word that really carries this meaning of welfare and well-being and all being right in a person's soul and spirit. And that's the word we're going to look at. We've got hundreds of passages we could choose from, actually, because a lot of the Bible is about well-being, shalom in that sense, but we're going to look at one in particular that's a very vivid demonstration of what, it is, of what well-being is, spiritually speaking, and that's Isaiah chapter 55, which I think is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible, because it doesn't just tell us about spiritual well-being or welfare or peace, whatever we call it, but it shows us what it's like using a very wide range of images, like being when you're very thirsty and you need water or needing bread or fat and rich food or wine or milk or bread or rain trees and fields bursting into song and celebration and abundance and applause and joy it's a very quite moving passage and what happens in it is we are offered by the prophet by god really we are offered an invitation to spiritual well-being and then we're given a challenge to spiritual well-being And then we conclude with a promise of spiritual well-being. There's an invitation, then there's a challenge, and then there's a promise of spiritual well-being that is still to come. And all of those are offered to you, whoever you are. That's That's God's word for you this morning. He wants you to come to him and find your spirit to be well in him. And we're going to see how he does that by reading Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, 
and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the brier shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This passage begins with an invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, you who have no money, buy and eat. It's free, honestly, it's all free. You can buy wine and milk even if you don't have any money. You don't have to pay for it. It's a picture of the human being as spiritually thirsty and desperate for a drink and suddenly being invited to drink from the fountain of life or milk or wine or whatever it is you want with no strings attached. Come to me, God is saying, and let me satisfy your thirsty soul. One of my favourite ever adverts that I've seen, you know, you have probably all of us have our favourite ads that we've seen on TV. One of my favourite adverts was an advert made in the late 80s by Tetley, the tea people. They had those men who would always walk around, you know, the Tetley tea guys, all spoken northern accents. And there's this, one of them is just crawling through the desert, just sand everywhere. He's crawling through the desert, just going, water, water, water. And then eventually finds this bottle of water and lifts it up and goes, and then he goes, kettle. Kettle. I just thought it really made me laugh and I just enjoyed the ad. But it's often like that kind of picture of someone who's absolutely desperate for a drink. And in our kind of culture, we're very rarely, most of us have almost never experienced that because there's always somewhere you can go and find somewhere to drink. You can you can buy some, you can find some from a tap. You know, this, even if you, you know, you can go into a public toilet and run a tap stick your face. There, there are There are all sorts of ways. You stop at someone's house, there will be running water almost anywhere we go. But of course, if you lived in the Middle East in the Iron Age, like Isaiah did, you might go through seasons of the year where that was a regular experience of extreme thirst and desperation. It would be something that you could relate to. Not, I don't mean thirst like, I've just had a packet of crisps and I quite fancy a little tipple. That, that's not what he's, this is like, 
I'm fantasizing everywhere I go about water because I'm so desperate for it. And Isaiah is using that image and saying, imagine being that thirsty or that hungry, perhaps, and then being invited to help yourself to anything you wanted for free. As imagine you've been craving like that, you've been thinking about it for hours, even days, and then you come across a fountain just bursting forth, a spring or a mountain stream pouring forth with the most cool, refreshing, crisp water, saying, I can drink as much of this as I want. I can quench my thirst and satisfy my soul. And Isaiah is saying, imagine that for free. That's God's invitation to you. That's what he wants to do spiritually to your heart today. Isaiah is saying it to Israel 2,700 years ago, but he's saying it to us as well. God's invitation to you is, come, come, I've got spiritual feasts that you know nothing of and I want to satisfy your soul. Would you come to me? Would you allow my grace and goodness to overwhelm you and to refresh the crying out in your heart? That's what God's grace is like. That's God's invitation to us. And the strange thing about it both in Isaiah's day and in ours, is that people often say no. People often say no. They are offered the fountain of living water and they reject it. And that's what Isaiah in verse 1 is saying, come, everybody, come and have whatever you want. It's all free. And you're thinking, all right, I'll come and have that. And then Isaiah says, there's like this sort of pushback against them. Why aren't you coming? Why are you rejecting the invitation? He says, verse 2, why are you spending your money for what isn't bread? And you'll labor for that which doesn't satisfy. This is so satisfying. And yet you're saying, no, I don't want that. I'm going to go and buy that instead. Why would you say, water is offered me, but I'm going to go and have sand. And Isaiah is saying, spiritually, that's what you're doing, Israel. That's what you're doing, people in London today. Why are you doing that? Why are you, you've got the offer of finding your soul satisfied by its maker and delighting and being invited to come and feast on him. And instead you're going for spending your money on something that ultimately doesn't cash out. And then he says, listen diligently to me and eat what's good and delight yourself in rich food. God is saying, I want you to seek your own happiness enough to come and find it in me. To, to, to not let go, to not be fobbed off with the sand instead of the water. I don't want that for you. I want you to come and be delighted. And the way you're going to get that is if you find the, the highest joy in the world, the highest good, the medieval theologians used to call him, the greatest good that there is. And you're going to find in him all the satisfaction your spirit requires. You have, and so do I, spiritual desires that only God can satisfy. For instance, your soul and mine longs for unconditional acceptance. That's something human beings are born to want. And actually, we might well have, I do. I've got lovely kids. I've got great parents. I've got a lovely wife. A lot, they accept me. And actually, they do a very, very good job of accepting me without strings attached. But ultimately, they don't provide unconditional acceptance. They don't provide a permanent fountain barrage, overwhelming flood of grace, which is what my soul craves even though they approximate to it. And of course, if you have relationships that are more complicated than that, then you'll find, oh, I'm, my soul even more longs, craves somebody to unconditionally accept me without regard for what I've done. Because, not because I'm a great person. In fact, in spite of the fact that I'm not a great person, my soul is craving grace, goodness given to me even when I don't deserve it. Your soul has that longing. Your soul has the longing It's a completely different longing. Your soul has a longing for the infinite love of a human being. 
And that's something that you can only find in the God who became human in Jesus Christ, right? Because if you want infinite love from a human being, there is nobody else who is prepared to go to the cross for you other than Jesus Christ. Nobody else's love extends that far, is stronger than death. You long, like I do, for a meaning that suffering can't take away. Right? Most of the meanings I construct for myself are, can be destroyed. They are vulnerable to suffering. Right? The love I have for my wife is vulnerable to her dying or me dying or both. The love I have for my children, the love I have for my job is vulnerable to me making a mess of it or losing a job or recession or whatever it may be. There's so many things in this world that are good gifts of God. But were I to make that the source of my meaning, I would find it vulnerable to suffering, tragedy. And my soul longs for a meaning that suffering can't destroy. In fact, my soul longs, and so does yours, longs for something even more than that. Your soul longs for immortality, for eternal life. Your soul longs to be free from death. So you have a lot of longings in your heart. Your heart pines for grace and so does mine. Actually, behind all of those things, your soul and mine are, whether we listen to the cry or not, are crying out for the living God. Our souls yearn and cry out for you. Oh God, the fountain of living water. All my streams are found in you, our souls cry. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And even with that cry welling up from within... For spiritual well-being, if you like, many of us still say no. We say no to the fountain and we say no to the banquet. C.S. Lewis said, it's a beautiful quote. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he has no idea what's meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. A different and probably less well-known individual these days, a man called Malcolm Muggeridge. This is a, a picture of him. He was uh, an extraordinary man, really. He was a spy in the war. He was a satirical comedian, a TV personality. He used to do interviews for Panorama. He was a journalist for The Standard and for The Telegraph. Uh, he was an early critic of the monarchy uh, when it wasn't cool to be that at all. He corresponded with Gandhi. I mean, he was a remarkable public figure in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And this is something he said towards the end of his life after, late in life, coming to Christ and finding true life in Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they're nothing, they're less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who what they are. What, I ask myself, what does life hold? What is there in the works of time, in the past or now and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water? If you're not a follower of Jesus today, God's invitation, Isaiah's God invites you to spiritual well-being. Come to the waters and find what your soul craves in the God of Jesus Christ. So there's an invitation to spiritual well-being. 
But alongside the invitation is a challenge to spiritual well-being. Look at the commands in verses 3 to 9. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Verse 3. That's like a, a call to listen to God so we might find life. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Verse 6. That's the image not just of listening but of looking to God so we might find his presence. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's the image of turning towards God so that we might experience his mercy. We're listening to God, looking to God, turning to God. It's a string of commands or imperatives. Incline, come, hear, seek, forsake, return. And what they're doing is they're challenging us to center our lives and focus our attention on God. And that is at the heart of what spiritual well-being is. Right? You may have had this with a frightened child. I don't know if you've experienced this with a, with a child you're looking after or you're caring for, a nephew, niece, grandchild, child, whoever it might be. But maybe in, the, in a thunderstorm or after a bad dream or after they've just badly injured themselves. But have you ever done this where you've got a, a child and they're quite hysterical and they can't see anything except the thing that's frightening them. And you're going, look at me, look at me. Don't worry about that. No, just look at me. Keep your eyes on me. It's going to be okay. I'm here. Now, what you're doing in that moment is you're saying, look to me. Find peace. Find well-being. If you just keep your attention fixed on me, we can get through this. I'm here with you. Don't look at all of these other things. Just keep your eyes on me. It's a personal version of, in a way of what God is offering Israel. Incline your ear to me. Look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Turn to me. Forsake the other things that you were going after. Just look to me and I will give you what your soul desires. So that happens, if you like, at a personal level with looking after maybe a child or a, any worried individual. But it happens at a cosmic level as well. And I was struck by this recently as I've been reading, uh, reading a number of things about medieval and early modern science and about how we sort of got from the way the medieval saw the world to the scientific breakthroughs of the 17th century. And I just found it fascinating to see again how critical one development was in unlocking, unblocking the drain and causing all the flurry of discoveries that followed. Because what happened in the medieval world is that people thought the earth was at the center of everything. They thought that, if you like, we are at the center, because that's what the Greeks had said. And they'd right the way back to the Greeks, everyone had said, in the middle of the cosmos is the earth, and is in some ways the human being that's at the center. But when you do that and you start studying as people began to get better and better telescopes and lens and that sort of thing, they began studying the stars and saying, I don't really understand then, because if the earth is in the middle, why isn't, why are some of these orbits not quite right? Like we see Jupiter, but then it kind of disappears and then Mars appears and then that's gone. And then the moon's doing this, but we're not really sure quite why that's happening in the way it is. But then we compare that to Venus and that's a very different picture. What is going on? Why, why doesn't the world make sense? And then somebody comes along, a Polish astronomer called Nicholas Copernicus, arrives in the middle of the 16th century and says, I think maybe, and I can't prove it yet, but I think maybe that the earth revolves around the sun. Rather than the earth being in the middle, the sun's in the middle. And that suggestion, which is gradually confirmed over the next hundred years, is a total game changer. And immediately physical laws that made no sense when the earth was in the middle suddenly start to fit. And before long you have gravity and theories of light and laws of motion and all the things we need for modern science. And it happens because somebody said, I think we've centered everything on the wrong thing. 
I think we've acted like I'm the centre, but I'm not big enough to make all of this work. In fact, if I'm at the centre, then all of this stuff becomes a little bit messy and weird and I can't make sense of where that fits or why that happens. Whereas when I reorient myself on the true centre, the Son, God himself, I orient myself around him, I say, ah, now it all makes sense. I'm orbiting God. He is this giant thing that's pulling me towards himself. And as long as I don't resist that and pretend it's actually something else over here, I can get caught up in the wonder and worship and adoration of him and all the other features of my life begin to make sense in light of him. Spiritual well-being, like scientific progress, is only possible if you put the right big thing at the center. And until you do, you find everything's a muddle. Created things, even very good ones, by the way, family, friendship, work, leisure, marriage, so those things, success are the things Malcolm Muggeridge was talking about. They're good things. They're gifts of God, but they're not big enough. They're not big enough to provide a meaningful organizing center to the whole cosmos because they didn't create you and they can be taken away. Ultimately, it is only God, the eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God, who is large enough to catch everything up in its orbit, including you, and make meaning of all of these things. And so Isaiah challenges Israel Turn your ear to him. Look to him. Turn to him. Stop trying to do it on yourself. Stop trying to make the moon revolve around you over here and then try to make Venus work over there and Jupiter over there. No, turn your eyes to the true center. Incline your ear to him. Look at him. Turn to him. Forsake your evil ways and stare at him. And as you have your life aligned and centered around him, you will find life, presence, mercy, goodness, well-being. And then to ground those instructions in his character, God says, let him return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, God says in verse 7 and 8. For my thoughts aren't your thoughts, and my ways aren't your ways, declares the Lord. The reason God says that is interesting. I, that text is quite well known. My thoughts aren't your People often quote it as if it means God does mysterious and weird and challenging things, and we just have to lump it. Which is true, by the way. It's called mystery, but that's not what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, seriously, guys, if you turn to God, no matter what you've done, you turn to him, he will abundantly pardon because his thoughts aren't like yours. You wouldn't pardon people in that situation. You wouldn't show mercy or compassion if someone had done that to you. But God does. His thoughts aren't like yours. His ways are higher than yours. And he will show far more mercy than you think he should in the same situation. It's such a reminder of the grace of God to say to you, no matter what you've oriented your life on, some of us, even we found the last 12 months, well, all of us have found the last 12 months hard. Some of us have found it very hard. Some of us, this is the first time we've connected with a church service like this for months and months because we're just finding it so hard to hold on to God, if at all. And in this text, God says, listen, I'm just saying, just turn back to me. Turn back, forsake that, center your life again on the source of all good and light and life and find well-being in me. Turn to me, look to me, listen to me and find life. So there's an invitation to spiritual well-being and then a challenge. But after the challenge, finally comes the promise of spiritual well-being. And Isaiah reminds us that ultimately the guarantee of our spiritual well-being is not our commitment to listening to God or looking to God or turning to God, as important as they are, but the life-giving, efficacious, as in it acts as it, it goes as it works, it is effective in doing what it's been sent to do, the life-giving, effective, powerful word of God. That's the guarantee for your well-being and mine.
Not my ability to go, I'm going to cling to God. It's actually God's ability to cling to me. It's God's power, and it's particularly the power of God's life-giving word to bring life everywhere it goes that provides the promise of spiritual well-being that I need. And this, what we're going to read, is to, we haven't got long, right? I've got to finish in a moment. So I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read this promise of the age to come when all things from God's people right through to creation itself, all things will be brought into perfect well-being at the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And I want to read this passage over you, if you like, so that you can receive and allow the word to do its work over you as Isaiah promises it will. Let, let God's life-giving word bring rain to your soul and well-being to your spirit all by itself as we read it beginning at verse 10 as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. For you shall go forth in joy and be led forth in shalom, in peace, in well-being. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, you'll get the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Friends, spiritual well-being is a promise. It's not ultimately dependent on your ability to hang on and look to God and turn to him, although those things are all good. It's ultimately dependent on his life-giving word that by falling like rain on your soul, even as you're hearing it now, brings and generates life all by itself. Ultimately, Israel's well-being then and your well-being now are secured by his mighty word and not by your mighty works. Malcolm Muggeridge was right. I beg you to believe me. These tiny triumphs are nothing when measured against one draft of the living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. What, I ask myself, what could life hold? What is there in the works of time, past, now and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water? Let's come to the waters and pray. Father, we thank you for being the source of all satisfaction, delight, joy, and hope that we need. Lord, I pray for my thirsty, hungry, desperate, tired, frustrated, bored, exasperated brothers and sisters today, and those who are not yet my brothers and sisters are listening in nonetheless. Lord, I pray that you would refresh our souls by causing us, by your life-giving word, to reorient ourselves on you, to put you back at the center of our lives, and in doing that, to find life, presence hope and meaning in the God who made it all we pray in Jesus name amen